If you have your Bibles, we are going to the book of Daniel. We are in Daniel chapter 7. If you need a Bible, Stephen is up and he'll get one and bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Daniel chapter 7 tonight. I want to just say a special welcome to uh, Trey Turner, who's here. Trey, hi, Trey's here. Kind of exciting. The Washington Nationals drafted him, so he's in one of the farm teams, but they're, they're going to the World Series this year, and so it's, it's awesome. Very cool. So just waiting for Trey to get up there so we can watch him on TV, and you can wave to the camera and say hi. Daniel chapter 7 tonight. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for just this opportunity to gather together this evening. Thank you, Lord, for your word and, Lord, how you reveal yourself to us through your word, every chapter, every book. It's all about you. And we praise you for that, God. We praise you for this time tonight. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would bless our children downstairs as they are being taught your word as well, that you would speak to their hearts. Lord, give us all understanding and application in our lives as we seek you and seek your will and seek your word tonight. We commit our time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, right now we're we're hitting you know about the middle of NFL football season, and uh, you know I enjoy watching the games. and And to look at Chapter Seven of Dan, you might say we have the same teams that are playing. I mean, in Daniel Chapter Seven, we have the Lions and the Eagles and the Bears and the Saints and the Rams. We also have the Chiefs or the Kings, even the, the Chief of the Universe, the Ancient of Days. There's also an unnamed beast. It's called Dreadful and Terrible. Maybe you can call that the New England Patriots. I don't know. Something like that. (laughs) But actually, Daniel's visions has nothing to do with the National Football League, but with the League of Nations. See, Daniel is writing from the captivity there in Babylon. Some 2,500 years is shown. He's being shown some 2,500 years of the Gentile world domination. What we'll see is that he will see, in this vision he's going to have, four beasts rising out of the sea. And these four beasts will represent uh, four world governing empires from Daniel's time all the way uh, to today. Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, then Greece, and then Rome. And these, these kingdoms rule the world over many, many generations. Now the exactness with which the prophet describes the details of these future events is absolutely amazing. The rise and the fall of kings and kingdoms described by Daniel here long before they appear in the pages of history. It's for that reason that there have been critics that that said that this was written after the fact and not before, which is what they always say when they can't explain Bible prophecy. In fact, from chapter 7 all the way to the end of the book, there's so many detailed predictions of the future that have actually come true that, that, that critics have a filled day with the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 11 alone, with just 35 verses, there are 135 fulfilled and documented prophecies. 135 predictions of the future and 35 verses, all of which have already happened. Now, we who are Christians... We have no problem with prophecy. We read, read about it and we go, yes, all right. It's just simply another evidence of God's incredible power. God orchestrates history. God is all-knowing. 
And for the Lord to predict uh, with great detail an event is no more difficult than you or I waking up in the morning and say, well, it's going to rain somewhere in the world. And of course it is. But when God gives these kind of meticulous, intricate prophecies, the unbeliever has a problem because they say there must be a logical explanation. It can't be supernatural. It's like a nine-year-old boy who went to, his, to uh, Sunday school and afterward his mom said, well, what did you learn in Sunday school? What did your teacher tell you? And so the boy said, well, what happened was the children of Israel, they were fixing to, to, to fight with the Egyptians. And so Moses was sent behind enemy lines to rescue them. And so what Moses did is he had his engineers build this huge pontoon bridge over the Red Sea so the children of Israel could get from one part to the other. Then he got on his walkie-talkie and he radioed for an extra support and the bombers came in and bombed the pontoon bridge. Now the Egyptians, they were on top of that and they all drowned in the Red Sea. And the mom looked at the boy and said, you mean to tell me that's what your Sunday school teacher taught you today? He said, no, mom, but if I were to tell you the way she told it to us, you'd never believe it. <laughs> and that's what the skeptic does. That's what the critic does. They can't believe the supernatural. Oh, this just can't happen. So they make stuff up. You know, well, it really wasn't the Red Sea that parted. It was the Reed Sea, they say. And, and the Reed Sea was only 18 inches of water. And so the children of Israel were able to cross through the, the Reed Sea. Okay, now explain to me how all the Egyptian army drowned in 18 inches of water. Well, here we have Daniel. Chapter 7, where there's a staggering proof that our God is a God that dwells outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning. And with that, let's kick it off now. Chapter 7, Daniel has a dream of vision. Look at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. So chapters 7 and 8 actually take place between chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled for seven years, seven years before he was restored. In chapter 5, the kingdom was taken from Nebuchadnezzar uh, and, and, and your grandson, uh, Belshazzar. Here, however, Belshazzar has just now come into power, and it's at this time that, that Daniel has this vision. Look at verse 2. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now the prophets Jeremiah and, and Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah all mentioned the four winds of heaven. Even Jesus said that he would send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds. But what exactly are the four winds of heaven? There's a, a lot of speculations. The most intriguing that it speaks of the, the uh, spiritual powers or forces. Scripture speaks of wind over 150 times, and many of those references speak of God's power and ability to affect world events and, and influence actions and, of mankind. Now, what is the great sea that's spoken of here in verse 2? Well, a common understanding of that is it refers to the Mediterranean Sea, the sea that has on its eastern shore the, the land of Israel. Huge body of water divides Africa and the European nations. Then we read in verse 3, And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, again, we gather from the context of this chapter that what Daniel sees is symbolic. This isn't, you know, Godzilla, and this isn't, you know, Rotan and you know, that type of thing. This is symbolic here. And all throughout the scriptures, the sea is a symbol for lost humanity. 
Isaiah 57.20 says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mirror and dirt. We still use that same phrase today. We've all heard the expression, a, a sea of humanity. The sea represents mankind, and the winds are God's providence, and He's the one who stirs up the nations. And, and what we see here is the same dream, really, that we looked at, that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2, only from a different perspective. Remember the dream in chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had of the statue? Daniel 2.32 says the, the image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And we had this, 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 this dream, this, this picture of this, this, uh, this statue here. And remember that every metal there was a monarchy. Now we're going to discover here in chapter 7 that every, every metal here is a, a beast. And every beast represents a kingdom. Four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the, from the other. And this is important because when the first dream was interpreted, and, and Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that he was the head of gold, I'm sure that Neb thought, yeah, that's right, I am the head of gold. That, that's me, that's who I am, and I'm the head of gold. But, 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 and that's his perspective, and that's his pride. But here in the interpretation, from a heavenly perspective, God says, the head of gold? No, not so much. You know, I see you more like a beast, in fact, in particular, a lion. See, from God's perspective, every king and every kingdom is a beast that either needs to be tamed or, or trained. And that's the idea here. Idea, idea here. That's what's being said here. A nation or a person who is all lifted up with pride and thinks of all that they have accomplished, who thinks, hey, I'm golden. From God's perspective, all he sees is human beings, a beast that needs to be tamed or trained a life that needs to be transformed by the saving uh, knowledge and power of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. So again, we will see that each beast here represents the kingdom. Now the first one, look at verse 4. The first, one, first was like a lion and had an eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and the man's heart was given to it. Now, the famed Ishtar gates are the doors going into ancient Babylon. And what they had on there were these winged lions as its insignia. But what happens here, we, we see to the wings, it says they, they get plucked off. You know, the, uh, watch till its wings are plucked off. They may say, well, that sounds like a pitch of Nebuchadnezzar. And you're right, that, that's exactly what it's, it's talking about here. Remember in chapter 2, we watched Nebuchadnezzar get his wings clipped, so to speak. He basically was turned into an animal, grazing into the field, humbled by the Lord until he recognized that the one that turned him into his animal is the one true God. Now through it all, Nebuchadnezzar came to realize God's hand in his life, and that Daniel's God was his God. He got a chance to discover God and discover what God had planned for his life. And now we can also see here from verse 4 that Nebuchadnezzar was somebody who was like eagle's wings stretched out over the land, controlled it all. I mean, that the Babylonian kingdom was powerful at that time. Nebuchadnezzar had control over it until, again, God plucked his wings and suddenly he couldn't fly, he couldn't soar any longer, and God gave him a new heart, a heart after God. Now who comes after the line? Look at verse 5. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. Now, what is this next beast that looks like a bear? Well, we know from uh, chapter 5, it's none other than the Medo-Persian Empire. Notice that Daniel depicts it as 
a bear raised up on one side. See, at the outset, the, the Medes and the Persians, these two countries shared power equally, but ultimately, Persia dominated. And so they're like, the Persian, Persian is like, like a bear, slow and plodding. They, they crush an enemy, even though it costs, you know, them thousands of their own men. In fact, they enjoyed a military strength of over two and a half million men, the largest army in that time, moving very, very slowly and awkwardly and gradually. As it says here, grabbing three barbecue ribs in the mouth between its teeth. No, it's not barbecue ribs. It doesn't say barbecue. But actually, most Bible scholars agree that the three ribs were the three countries that the Medo-Persian Empire devoured. Babylon, Egypt, and Libya. Eating the flesh off its bones, just like the beast and the three ribs, just as Daniel prophesied. Again, this was written before it happened. Who came after the Medo-Persian Empire? Look at verse 6. After this I looked and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now again, we don't have to go too far in human history to know that after the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire took control. And the Grecian Empire was controlled and moved by Alexander the Great. And he worked militarily like a leopard. I mean, he, he was quick. He came in very quickly. There were over a million Medes, and suddenly with 35,000 men, he snatched them, he grabbed them, he took control. But just as he, as he, fast as he grew, just as fast as he grabbed control, so too was the speed of his breakup. Alexander the Great was 31 years old when he died. When he died, he died in Babylon, and, he, and on his deathbed, the people surrounding him said, Well, what shall we do with the kingdom? To whom shall, shall the kingdom go? They said, Give it to the strong. And the kingdom was divided up between the generals of Alexander. Guess how many there were? Four. Just as it says here, verse 6, The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now how could Daniel have known all of that? That's why the critics have such a hard time with the book of Daniel. And that's why they say, well, this had to be written after the fact. Again, when God gives these kinds of meticulous, intricate prophecies, the unbeliever has a problem because they say there must be a logical explanation. can't be supernatural, but it is. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Look at verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. See, this, is the, this, this fourth beast really disturbed Daniel. Now, he wasn't afraid of, of the beast, the lions, and the, the, and the lion's den, but this fourth beast shook him up. He calls them dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns, and, and the main feature is its iron teeth. Now, historically... We know this to be the iron rule of Rome. Rome became famous for its cruelty. Its lust for blood is, is uh, unrivaled. They refined the, the crucifixion, gladiators and, and human tortures and feeding Christians to the lions. All were examples of this ruthlessness of Rome. She did devour. She did trample. She did destroy the Roman Empire extended from England to Egypt and from the Atlantic to the Euphrates, far outstretching the reach of its predecessors. We know that Rome ruled the world from 146 B.C. to 476 A.D. Their empire lasted 600 years, longer than the Babylonians, Persians, and the Greeks combined. 
So this fourth, fourth beast was the Romans. But it represents so much more than just ancient Rome. Ultimately, it was never destroyed, as we'll see later on in this chapter. It simply degenerated and dis- disintegrated from the inside out. But today, it's an empire which has been awakened and it's once again emerging as a world power. You see, the same nations which made up the Roman Empire continue to exist today. See, here we read in verse 7, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. These horns are synonymous with the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2, the, the statue there in t- chapter 2. The horns, the toes speak of a confederation of ten nations coming out of the old Roman Empire. It speaks of a revived Roman Empire ruling in the last days, and we're going to look at this closer later on in the chapter. Now look at verse 8. Daniel says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Daniel says, I was considering the horns, and then there was another horn. Now, who is this other horn? Well, this really describes the rise of the Antichrist, is what we see here. The beast has human eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. He's he's very prideful. We'll look at him more in a moment as well. But this is why many scholars see in this fourth beast a last day's revival of ancient Rome. And the little horn is seen as the Antichrist who will rise up out of a revived Roman Empire. Listen to Revelation 17, 12 and 13. It says this, And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. So again, in, in, in a parallel uh, text, the, the beast really received their authority is the Antichrist. In Daniel's prophecy here, he's a little horn that is raised up with control over the other horns. This little horn, empowered by Satan, will position himself take over the entire world as he makes his way to Jerusalem to set up his kingdom on the earth. And this scenario, it's going to unfold exactly as prophesied by Daniel with the aid of this political structure of this present day world. Now look at verse 9, he continues. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. The phrase ancient of days could be translated days without beginning or the one who's been around forever. This is our God. And, and if you look at this picture, it resembles Revelation 1, 13 and 14. White hair like wool and eyes and fire. Now verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Heaven's tribunal, God's court, has come to order. Now this is not the great white throne judgment which occurs after the millennium, but this is the setting is for the, the, this is the setting for the judgment of the great tribulation. And the return of Jesus Christ establishes his millennial kingdom upon the earth. Now verse 11. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now we know the identity of the one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds, none other than Jesus Christ. 
In fact, Jesus even applied the same passage to himself. Matthew 26, 63, at his trial of the high priest, they asked Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answered by quoting Daniel here. It is as you said, he says, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The priest knew that Jesus was speaking of himself and quoting from the book of Daniel. That's why you read there that the high priest tore his clothes saying, He has spoken blasphemy. He goes on in verse 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. That's a hearty amen goes right there. Now Psalm 2 tells us God will give to us of the nations as an inheritance and, an earth as, as, and the earth as his possession. See, in, in, in quoting Daniel to the high priest, Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God equal to the Ancient of Days. How does Daniel respond in verse 15? I, Daniel, was grieved and my spirit was in my body and the visions of my head troubled me. I think if I had a vision like that, I would be grieved and I would be troubled as well. So verse 16, I came here to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So here we have an angel that will continue to come and give Daniel understanding of what Daniel's vision meant. He explains in verse 17, those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now this term saint here means set apart or dedicated to God. In contrast to the Gentiles who have been ruling the world, these saints are, are, are the Jews. God promised to David that Israel would one day be given an everlasting kingdom. That the Messiah would reign again in Israel. So Daniel foresees uh, Israel's coronation day. And this is a great encouragement to Daniel. Jerusalem had been destroyed, Babylon, and the Jews were in exile. Gentiles controlled the world, even the land of Israel. But God's promises would not fail. So Daniel says, uh, I get that. Okay, now what about this? Look at verse, verse 19. Daniel says, well, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints and the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. This fourth beast really interests Daniel because of its great destructive power, and because of this, this conspicuous horn, and because of its fight against the saints. What is this all about, Daniel's asking? Give me some understanding of this. Verse 23 Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. What this is, and what we believe this is, is a ten-nation confederacy. you got the ten toes, a ten-nation confederacy. If you look at it from the European Union standpoint, 
We know that this is a revived Roman Empire, and, and really the European Union, you know, was revived starting back in, in March 25th, 1957, with what's called the, the Treaty of Rome. They all signed it. Half a dozen European nations took a pledge of unity. You had France and Belgium and West Germany, Luxembourg, Italy, the Netherlands, all within the borders of ancient Rome. They signed the treaty and the European economic community was born. And over the 60 years that that followed, and with the fall of the Soviet Union, the EU has expanded its membership and intensified its its efforts towards unification. In fact, here's a a brief timeline to to talk about this revived Roman Empire. Uh, The the unification started with the treaty in 1957. 1979 saw the first elections to an EU parliament. 1985 brought open borders with no passport control. 1986 saw the establishment of the European flag, if you, it's blue with the stars in the circle. 1993, in the Maastricht Treaty, launched a formal plan for full economic, political, and military unity. 1999, the euro became the EU's single currency, and, and that's really propelled the European Union to be really the second wealthiest uh, economy in the world, next, next to China, U.S. is third. Now, when they... Uh, Originally, when the European Union was in its infancy, Bible prophecy students were dead set on the premise that the EU would be comprised of only only ten nations. When it started, okay, this is it, there's only going to be ten nations. But what happened is when more nations involved and got involved and joined it, then it kind of messed up that whole deal. And since 2000, the EU has grown from 6 to 12 to 27 member states. Of course, it's not been without setbacks. This June, in response to the control and control immigration, economic certainty, remember Britain withdrew from the EU. It was their, their Brexit. Other uh, countries were threatening to, to follow. Recently, the French Prime Minister was quoted as saying, now is the time to invent another Europe. Now, many teach that 10 of them will rise to prominence, and that certainly may happen. That's where we might see it. 10 out of these nations will come. And God, obviously being all-powerful, will accomplish this his way. And his timing, and that could be how. Yet regardless of what happens to its current configuration, European unity is seen as a necessity. In fact, the two world wars of the 20th century started in Europe. And this is what prompted uh, former German Chancellor Helmut Kohl to, to state, war in Europe is only avoidable, avoidable through European Union, and for that reason, political unity is the most important of all. See, the unification of Europe today is seen as a glue that keeps the peace. Especially with the rise of Islam, unity is all the more important. And when you read the, the EU's constitution, it's, it's no wonder that it's, it's, a, it's a democratic ideals that are attributed to ancient Greece and Rome. The EU totally ignores a Christian heritage. In fact, the EU's you know, favorite symbol is the Greek goddess Europa on the back of a mystical bull, and it's often seen rising out of the sea like the fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7. Revelation 17, the last days, Rome is also seen as a woman riding the beast, and, and really it's the same picture there, that this woman is a religion that, that rides to power on the dreadful beast of Daniel 7. That same symbol is used all over, uh, uh, the beast is used all over Europe. So we see this forming. We see this taking shape right now. Now look at verse 24. We read, And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. So another king will rise out of the ten. And we're told that he will overcome three obstructionist states and rule over the other seven. 
Remember, Daniel tells us the fourth beast will devour the whole earth, and and this little horn which rises among the, the ten horns will eventually rule the world, as we pointed out briefly. This guy is the Antichrist. Goes by many names in Scripture. He's a seed of the serpent, the Assyrian, the, the man of sin, the, the willful king, the lawless one, the beast. But we know him as the Antichrist. Actually, the real hurdle to the European unity over the last 60 years has been a lack of leadership. Europe suffers from this, this power vacuum. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, East German March and Garber stated, power is lying on the ground waiting for somebody to pick it up. Interesting. And, and this man, Paul Henry Spock, his name, he was the EU founder, uh, died many years ago, but he stated this, we don't want another committee, we want a man of stature to hold the allegiance of the people and lift us up out of the economic mess we've gotten ourselves into, send us a man, whether he be God or devil, send him. It's a guy who, who started the European, you know, one of the founders of the European Union. See, they're going to desperately seek a leader, someone to rise up and lead, and soon the little horn of Daniel 7 will appear. And I think it's quite possible this guy is alive today in this world, being groomed for his role. Now, we've been going through this on Matthew chapter 24 on, on Sunday mornings, and so, you know, we've talked about him quite uh, deeply, I think, over the last couple of weeks, and we won't know who he is because the Bible says we're going to be raptured out of here, taken out of here before all this takes place. Look at verse 25. Of this Antichrist, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for time and times and a half a time. So this little horn, this, this Antichrist, he's going to be so arrogant, he's going to try and alter the calendar, maybe even the days of week, tinker with the fundamental principles of law. You know, right now our law, the United States based off of the Ten Commandments. They're going to change all of that. They'll probably try to strip from the culture all traces of our Judeo-Christian heritage and usher in the new world order, the post-Christian era. Again, in verse 25, he'll persecute the saints. That word persecute means to wear out. This is for a time, times, and a half a time. Or for three and a half years. Again, we looked at this on Sunday morning as well with Matthew 24 and the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist will come to the newly rebuilt temple there in Jerusalem, demand to be worshipped as God. The Jews will go, wait a minute, you aren't the guy we thought you were and they're going to reject him and then, then basically he's going to come after them and, and the per- all that persecution will come against the Jewish people. And it'll last for three and a half years, a time and a time and a half time till Jesus returns. Now, some people equate these saints here with the church. And they'll say, well, the, the word saints here is a church, and, and that means Christians are going to endure the great tribulation period. But the saints can't be the church. In verse 21 we read, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Now in Revelation 13:7 it says, concerning the Antichrist, it was granted him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. The problem with this being the church, as Jesus declared in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Period. But here the Antichrist prevails against the Jews and I believe also against the tribulation saints. That is those come into faith in Jesus Christ uh, after the rapture of the church during the great tribulation period. 
See, I believe after the rapture of the church, there's going to be one of the greatest, uh, you know, outpouring of, you know, of people coming to Christ. Uh, you know, they're going to, what's going on here? What's happening here? They're going to be maybe going online and trying to listen to our studies on Daniel and, and, and Matthew 24. What's happening here? What's happening here? And we're going to be saying, listen, this is what's happening here. But they're going to have to die for their faith. They're going to have to die. In fact, the Bible teaches in Revelation 20 that they will actually practice, you know, establish the process of decapitation. And anyone that doesn't have the mark of the beast is going to lose their head. So they'll die a martyr's death and they'll be taken into eternity and receive this incredible inauguration when they come into the kingdom. The Bible describes these saints that they came out of the tribulation. Now certainly it appears that, that you know, the enemy will overcome them, but the reality is he may put them to death, but they're going to be in eternity with God forever. So, so you know, they're really with God. So, so nothing more they can do to them. Now what, what will happen in the Antichrist? Look at verse 26. But the court shall be seated, and it shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Revelation 19.20 tells us that in the end the Antichrist will be cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. That's it. Time's up. You are out of here. And the kingdoms of man will end, and the kingdom of God will, will, will be established forever. Then finally, verse 27, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. That's the end of the world as we know it. Jesus brings us into His kingdom. This is the, the, the this first part is millennial, a thousand years of a remade earth. We come back, Christ on this earth, remade, revitalized, perfect environment for a thousand years. After that thousand years, then, then, then it's new heaven, new earth, eternal state forever and ever and ever. Finally, verse 28. This is the end of the account. <laughs> I like that. Reminds me of Forrest Gump. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> he, said, he goes, As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. I mean, it was a lot to grasp. Imagine you or I being shown the entire history of mankind, all in, in one setting, one, one vision, one, one dream the end of human history. See, the world had a beginning and it will have an end. Every kingdom that rises will fall. Every single nation that comes has, has a shelf life. I mean, if, if there's a theme of Daniel that, that, that is overriding, that's it. All these kingdoms of men will go. And this world will end. But Jesus said, whoever believes in me shall never die. I, I think about that. I think, aren't we such a blessed people? To be living in a time where God has poured His grace upon us. He's allowed us to understand the times and the seasons. To understand what being, being, being taught here. The Bible says knowledge will increase in the last days. We're giving understanding of these things right here. And why? With that comes the responsibility. God said, man, I, I'm allowing you to be born and live during this time. The time that I'm getting ready to come back close up this earth, close up what's happening here. And you're going to be here in order to, to, to be those, those really those last days Christians, getting as many people as you possibly can to come into the kingdom. What a privilege that God gives to us to be able to reach people with the love of God and what Christ has done for them. You know, man, it, 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 it blows my mind.
It just blows my mind. Lord, you've counted us worthy to be able to do something like that. All right. Chapter 8 next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Lord, we thank you for just our lives, Lord. And really what we recognize is just just a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. But it blows me away, it blows us away, Lord, that how you've called each of us for such a time as this. To be those living in the last days, knowing what's to happen, Lord, that we might be used by you through the power of your Holy Spirit to reach a world that is dying and, and swiftly on its way to destruction. Father, we thank you for the privilege of that. We thank you, Lord, for our salvation. Lord, we thank you that none of these things will take us by surprise, as your word says, but we can know these things. We know the times. We know the seasons. We know that your return is is near. And so we say as a church, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Can't wait to be with you for eternity. Thank you, Lord, for your love your grace, the forgiveness of our sin.